Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a fellow podcaster, uh, Dr. Kat Arney. She runs the Genetics Society Podcast. She's also an award-winning science writer, a public speaker, and a broadcaster, uh, author of popular genetics books, Herding Hemingway's Cats and How to Code a Human. Uh, She holds a degree in natural sciences and also a PhD from Cambridge University. Uh, Many, many accolades here, and uh, I'm glad to have her. Dr. Kat, (laughs) thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Yeah, tell me, what what led you to start the uh, Genetics Society podcast? So I've been involved in podcasting for a very, very long time. So I was actually involved, I think the first podcast I got involved in was with the Naked Scientists. And this was back in maybe 2004, 2005, when when podcasting was very, very new. So I worked with them. It was a radio show and a podcast for a long time. And I made a podcast called Naked Genetics for many years for the Naked Scientists and, and for the main Naked Scientists show as well. And then a few years ago, the Genetic Society so they used to sponsor Naked Genetics and decided it was time for a bit of a change. And so we launched Genetics Unzipped, which is the, the Genetic Society podcast now. And that was at the end of 2018. So that, that was a really fun experience, you know, building a new podcast from scratch, thinking about the kinds of topics, taking things in a bit of a different way. And, you know, we have interviews with some of the leading experts in the world in genetics. It's been amazing, a a gift to really interview, you know, Nobel Prize winners and people working right at the most exciting cutting edges of this incredibly exciting field. And then also at the same time, we mix that in with narrative stories. We go back and look at the history of genetics. And I'm particularly keen to uncover some of the the hidden, the less well-known stories back in history history of genetics, uh, particularly a lot of the women whose stories have been maybe written out of the history, trying to explore now some of the stories of people of colour that have been written out of the history of genetics. And, uh, and we try and tell those stories, put things in context and see really where this field has come from, because the Genetic Society was founded in 1919, celebrated its centenary in 2019. And in that past 100 years, really since the term genetics was coined, it's been a time of incredible flourishing of ideas, of science, of progress, but also some, you know, pretty dark stuff as well. You know, the spectre of eugenics hangs over this entire field. So making sure that we do look back, that we do explore the stories, we look where people have been treated well, where people have been treated badly, and try and put this field, this whole field in context, really. So what are some of the I don't know, the most current interesting stories that you've been running across, you know, maybe in the past year or so. So we've covered a lot of different stories. We've actually, obviously, I'm sure you're, all your listeners are aware that there's, uh, there's been some stuff going on this year in the whole kind of like global pandemic side of things. Right. But we've actually tried to, we've tried to steer clear of that. We did do one episode where we looked more generally at genetic susceptibility to diseases. So humans have evolved 
in synchrony with our pathogens for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And uh, so we looked more at like, why are some people more susceptible to diseases than others? Uh, how that has evolved over modern humanity for, for tens of thousands of years. And then also some quite exciting research that's looking at twins and whether they get tend to get similar symptoms of COVID or different symptoms of COVID, because we know that COVID is a disease that seems to affect people very, very differently. So how much of that is in our genes and how much of that is, is down to other circumstances? And then, my goodness, we've covered uh, all sorts of different stories. We've looked back at the story of the discovery of PCR which is a technique that's really come to prominence, again, through COVID testing. Um, but it's a very common lab technique where we can copy bits of DNA. And uh, it was the story goes, you know, that the kind of the way the popular story is told is that there was this guy called Carrie Mullis who discovered it. And he he loved to get like high on LSD. And he was driving in the night and had this vision of dancing bits of DNA in his head. And he's like, yeah, this is this is PCR. This is how it works. And then you kind of look into it a bit more and like, he had some ideas, but actually the technique was written about a decade before by some other researchers. And, um, you know, maybe you kind of come to the conclusion that perhaps this guy should have got a, a Nobel Prize for literature rather than science. And, uh, and he was also a spectacular sexist jerk as well. Do you think he knew that there was previous writing about it or did reinvent it himself? So it, it's never been explicitly said that the story that he tells is that he looked in the library. And remember, this is back in the 1980s when if you know you couldn't do an Internet search in the way that we can now, you know, you just search PubMed and you can find all the papers. You know, you had to go to the library and rely on the skill of your librarian to tell you, you know, has anyone done this kind of research? But when you kind of unpack the technique the actual, the kind of the technique and a lot of the tools that this PCR technology was built on, he was already using, so they must have known about them. And that all came from this other lab. It was a researcher called Harbin Karana, who was a, an American Indian researcher. And so, you know, this technique was, if not, you know, they kind of invented this idea. They wrote about it in a paper. They didn't actually do the practical experiment to prove that it could work. But I think they probably get you know, some of the credit for, for innovating. And again, a lot of the work that was actually done to make this PCR technique done was done by researchers at a company working with Mullis. Mullis kind of basically had the idea and then got other people to do all the work. But he was the only person who got a Nobel Prize for it. And, um, and he certainly does spin a good story about that. So, you know, digging into some of these, these canonical stories through the history of, of science, I, I think is really, really enlightening. And you see where, where people have been left out of the stories. And I think that's really important that we, we do try and uncover and, and tell those stories. What about, I guess, Watson and Crick, probably one of the biggest stories in genetics. I'm sure you've looked into that. Yeah, we've, we've certainly unpacked that story a couple of times, actually. So we've taken it from the angle that many people now do know about the way that Rosalind Franklin and her work has was sort of got lost, let's say, in the telling of the, the story of the discovery of the structure of the double helix, particularly by what, in my opinion, is, is not a terribly pleasant character. And, uh, and you know, and there's the old joke goes, you know, what did Watson and Crick discover? And then the, the old joke, the answer is uh, Rosalind Franklin's notes. But, you know, we are starting to hear about that story of how she's been overlooked for her work that really underpinned the discovery of the double helix. But obviously she wasn't able to receive a Nobel Prize for it because she'd actually passed away by that point. Um, but there are many other people who really did play, I think, quite fundamental roles in uncovering at least aspects of the double helix. There was one poor PhD student who took a very similar photo and, uh, you know, and, 
just didn't kind of put two and two together. And uh, and it, it does make you question, actually, how do we acknowledge great science? Because you know the pinnacle of scientific research is meant to be the Nobel Prize, and everyone reveres Nobel Prize winners, and they're like the gods of a science. And I just genuinely, the more I look into the history of science, the more I think it's the worst way of recognizing scientific success. Because really science, particularly now, is, is team science. And to say it's only three people who have to share one prize and they can't be dead. And, you know, it's basically the great men of science, mostly, I think is just. And, and then we put these people on a pedestal and listen to every word they say uh, and assume that they're right about literally everything just because they made you know, in many cases, you know, one or a small series of insightful discoveries in one very specific area. I think it's mm. it's actively damaging at this point. Yeah, I would think you have enough stories and I mean, to easily write, a, you know, a compendium of them in a book, which would be pretty cool. I don't know if you, if you thought about doing that <laughs> or if you've done it or I've definitely pondered it. I do like making radio programs. So I do ponder about the sort of the when Nobel Prize winners go bad. Write it under the uh, like a fake name, like Mr. Nobel or something. Yeah, Nobel. I did actually do a podcast. There's a podcast called Worst Foot Forward, where we did discuss the worst Nobel laureates of all time, which is quite funny. I think that's coming out fairly soon. But no, I've, I've just finished, uh, I've just brought out a new book. So I'm, I'm going to take a little bit of time off book writing. I brought a book out about uh, cancer this summer called Rebel Cell, which is sort of about cancer and evolution and the science of life. So I think I, I might need a bit of a break from books for a little bit. Yeah. You know, I've also heard the peer review process. Again, it's a label. It sounds like, oh, this has been peer reviewed. But from what I've heard from some scientists, you know, you, if, you, if there's a peer reviewer that doesn't like you, your stuff's not getting published. And people will tend to do trades where I'll peer review your stuff and you do mine and we'll make sure it gets published type thing. So you know, I, I start to wonder about the whole edifice of science, like what really is uh, gets out there and what doesn't. You know, I mean, organizations with tons of money will promote the science they want to see out there. And then other science gets may not get enough funding. So, I mean, what's your picture there of, uh, again, the peer review process and scientific funding? I think it's it's one of these things where it's like, I feel like the current system of scientific, let's call it like scientific industry, or like the, the science research industrial complex or whatever you want to call it it's it always reminds him of that quote about you know the democracy is the worst system of government apart from all the others like the, the system that we have now is not great I think you know what so what how do we replace it I think there are some really interesting moves as to how do we try and bring more transparency in science how do we try and try and unhook the the money from the publicity from the the funding and speaking of someone who's like my job is as a communicator of science and I get paid by organizations that are trying to tell their story about their research you know I'm slightly conflicted in this in this as well but certainly the peer review process when it works well I think it works excellently well when it doesn't work well and and now we have all these kinds of strange predatory journals because there's so much pressure to publish so it's maybe not necessarily the, the peer review process itself, but it's like, what is pressuring people to publish under any circumstances? You know, publish or perish, must publish. And the desire to just get some kind of publication out. What do you mean predatory journals? Like what, what's going on there? Yeah, so this is a very interesting area to look at. So the conventional idea of scientific publications is you have a scientific journal and, uh, you know, you submit your paper to the journal and they send it to reviewers and it's peer reviewed. 
and this is published and it's legitimate. But there's now, you know, there are thousands and thousands of journals and there are lots of journals springing up all the time where let's say that practices are somewhat shady. So the practices of peer review are uh, you know, absent or, or not robust, that they are charging people lots and lots and lots of money to publish in there because people just want publications. You know, they're not they're not really upholding the quality standard of peer-reviewed science that you would expect. And and this is, I think, becoming increasingly problematic. You've got this wild profusion of journals, a wild profusion of papers, because everyone needs to publish their papers to get more money. And it's it's almost this kind of like giant Ponzi scheme. So to, to point at one thing, to point at peer review and say, that's the problem. It's like, well, the whole kind of engine is the problem. You know, the funders want to see scientists publish lots of papers and, and to fund them. The journals want to publish lots of papers because it gets them money. Journalists want people to publish interesting science so that, you know, we can write interesting stories about it. Um, and scientists want to publish papers because it, you know, it makes them look good and then they get more funding for it. So it has this weird sort of this sort of tangle that do you need to start about how do we really unpick that and I I will confess I don't have many great ideas about that but certainly I think being able to really criticize openly criticize and scrutinize science in a public way I think is incredibly important like the transparency and criticism is a word where people think oh you're just tearing down or you're you're slagging it off but actively you know reviewing criticizing science openly and saying this bit this bit's good this bit's bad this is a very small sample this experiment is poorly planned this control isn't very good without worrying that someone will you know sue you or, or cancel you I think is really important well where do papers go that don't get through peer review into like the major journals. Well, you sort of go down the food chain to the point where like some journal will accept it, which again is not a really great thing. What's been very interesting in the time of COVID is this phenomenon of preprints. And I don't know if you've kind of come across these things. Lots I've, of, I've seen some, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so you have now these big, they're called preprint servers. A less fancy way of putting this is they are websites that host PDFs. So whenever someone says, oh, preprint server, it's like, this is a website where people can upload PDFs. Never forget that. Anyone can upload a PDF to this website, right? And there's, you know, originally they were in the physical sciences. So there's a physics uh, preprint server called Archive. And the physics community really built around this idea that you would upload your, your paper and then people could criticize it. And it was this kind of like more active, open process of peer review. And it was also a way of kind of not quite publishing, but like publicly, publicly putting out findings. So you could say, we found this, hasn't gone for peer review yet, but, you know, help us make this better. What do you think? Or at least we got to this idea first. You know, a good way to put a stick in the ground. And then there were also other preprint servers that sprung up in the life sciences. So BioArchive and MedArchive. And these have been going on for some time. Preprints are not a new thing. But suddenly this year with the pandemic, the speed at which science has had to happen, it's absolutely unprecedented. You know, we've had this disease spreading across the world in a matter of months. And so if people and scientific publication normally is very slow, you know, it can take years to get a paper published at the, at the quickest. It could take months. Right. In the middle of the pandemic, we and we still don't have time to wait for that process. So people who are, are publishing papers, they are putting them up on the preprint servers. And then you have this challenge of like, well, as a science communicator, as a journalist, you're like, 
we want to promote this. We want to talk about it. Reporters want to write about this. This is important stuff, but it's not gone through that peer review process. So have have people done meta-analyses in a given subject of peer review stuff and non-peer review stuff to see like what the differences are? Because that would probably show you maybe Mm. a stark difference in what's published, you know, let's say around, you know, breast cancer or something. It'd be interesting for people to do those comparisons. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, so I think COVID has been so exceptional in terms of just the volume of stuff and people pre-printing in a way that was really not done before. But I did see one study, I think it was done, may have been done by the National Association of Science Writers in the US, where they looked at, they tried to follow up how many of preprints that they found did actually end up being published because the journals have really accelerated their publication processes. And it's, it was a significant proportion, but I think it was still about 10 to 15% of preprints did never become a published paper. And so it's a bit like, oh, well, but lots of papers also do get retracted. I feel like more papers that have been published now are coming under scrutiny, are being retracted. There's a lot of work going on by a researcher called Elizabeth Bick to look at things like plagiarism in papers, and particularly at the speed at which some of these findings in COVID have been published, even in journals. I think we are going to see some of them, some of them being retracted over the coming years, you know, as and the field is kind of trying to figure out the how have we dealt with this at such speed? What do we actually know? Yeah, but how do you figure out when you're looking at a paper, whether it's accurate or not, whether, like you said, the placebo was done right, the, the control was right, the experiment was done right? You know, when, once a paper is, you know, published and gone through peer review, it kind of, it forms the foundation for other stuff. And then, you know, if you're five layers up from the original paper and the original paper was wrong, mm. then what do you do? Yeah, so there's, there's definitely kind of house of cards type stuff. There's definitely sort of edifices that have fallen because the fundamental paper, even published papers, you know, I've seen papers published in big journals, you know, Nature and and places like that, that have had to be retracted. So, you know, this does happen in, for want of a better way of putting it, normal science. What's been really interesting in COVID is seeing how places like Twitter have actually stepped into that peer review hole. And so, you know, there's lots of really great scientists that are on Twitter and they're seeing the preprints and they're kind of pulling them apart. They're doing the peer review live in public on Twitter. And that's kind of what I mentioned earlier, this idea that, you know, transparent, open criticism, I think is is a really good thing because it's enabling, you know, yeah, some of it gets quite technical, but it is enabling us to see this process of scientific criticism of review. It's like, okay, this research team has published this paper. Here's the figures. Here's the data. Here's what they did. And you can have like 10, 20 top researchers pulling it apart and going, does this stand up? Doesn't this stand up? How does this fit into what we know already? And it's, that's been a joy for me, a very nerdy joy, I suppose, is, um, is seeing this process happen through the pandemic. This kind of real time oh. science happening. When you see it happen, though, is it, um, does it look fair or do you see, uh, I don't know, people just shouting down some papers? Like when, do, you know, in what situations <laughs> does it work or what situations does it not work? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of noise that, and there is sometimes more heat than light. I think it's, it does work well in many situations. What's I think interesting in, in COVID as well is the way that the science has become so politicized. I think possibly slightly less. Yeah, slightly less here in the UK than it, than the situation for you guys in the US. 
whereas here broadly we have kind of like you know pro more stricter lockdown and pro less stricter lockdown but generally it's like most people I think in the UK are taking it fairly seriously there are definitely kind of some lines but the problem is in a situation like this there are very few actual right answers and we're all having to grapple with like with risk and conflicting data and and you know what do we the next experiments that what are the data sets that are missing so yeah it's been interesting and and i think you know there well, is some motivated reasoning why has no country said we're going to figure this out we're going to study you know masks we're going to study social distancing we're going to study all aspects of this we're going to throw x number of billion into it and we're going to partner with these countries and we're going to figure this out like i have yet to see that i don't understand why the whole world is just parroting and you know copying each other and i don't see anyone coming out with with actual like data it's just very strange to me it doesn't make any sense yeah so there was was actually a study on masks it was a danish study i think on masks yeah which, and had a uh, very hard time getting which into came, journals yeah which kind of came to the conclusion that you know i think most of us certainly a lot of the the people that i trust kind of came to the conclusion like masks don't protect you they protect other people if everyone's wearing them but yeah, I think what's a challenge is where the money is and where that like everything is on fire and there's a limited amount of money and resources. And this kind of stuff, well, these kind of public yeah. health interventions are really hard to do. It's really hard to do a study on mask like, wearing. If people are worried about schools, for instance, you know, why can't they pay volunteers a couple thousand dollars a piece? You get tons of them. They would, I'm sure they would cry it's unethical, but how is it ethical to do what's been done? And if there's no money, you know, if, if people are willing to lose trillions in their economies, how come there's not billions available then to do these studies or millions? It makes no sense. Well, they, all, the, all that money's gone into vaccines, which, you know, this is why it's interesting that these are legitimate things like where should we best spend our money? Um, which countries should we best spend our money in and, and all kinds of things? What is interesting is that a lot of epidemiology and COVID will be one of these situations enables us to do kind of natural experiments you know if you're asking like should should schools shut should schools open um you know some countries have chosen one path some countries have chosen the other path and we probably won't know for a, a year in some cases what the best you know what the best thing to do was and so you know maybe it will help it will shape our information about what to do next time round yeah in the next pandemic jesus but yeah, that there are natural experiments, and even in different U.S. states that have enacted different different rules in different parts of different states, you will see these natural experiments. But it's going to take time to gather the data on them for sure. Yeah, it just seems like data is being ignored. It doesn't matter, you know. There's data yeah, there. yeah, gathering data is hard. I think with with these public health interventions, it's very very hard to do experiments because it's hard to make people do stuff. But what you can do is just look at what people are doing and gather the data and then do the statistics on it. That's kind of classic, classic epidemiology stuff. So hopefully there, there will be some of that kind of work going on. But it's just been really hard because like everyone's just stuck in the thick of it. Yeah, it uh, has just been a massive challenge all around. You said there's a lot of exciting developments. I mean, what, so what are some of like the most exciting developments in genetics that you've seen recently? I will have to be a little bit biased here because I have just brought out a book which is all about kind of cancer and genetics and um, as I mentioned it's called Rebel Cell and this book is a culmination of a lot of my interest over years in sort of the genetics and the evolution of cancer and um, and my, my first book Herding Hemingway's Cats was really exploring how do our genes work 
how do you take a, a single fertilized egg cell with one set of DNA and unfold that to create life, to create an organism, a baby with organs and tissues that grows and heals and, and does all this amazing stuff? How do you unfold life from one cell and one genome? And in this book, Rebel Cell, it's kind of like, well, what happens when that process kind of goes through the dark side? So you have one cancer cell with one set of messed up DNA, one messed up genome, and it unfolds a terrible disease from it. These cells multiply, they evolve, they change, they become resistant to treatment. So that's really what has been obsessing me and exciting me over the past year or so that I've been researching and writing the book, is really exploring these ideas of what do we now know about how cancer starts? This, the thing that really surprised me is that we've had for a very long time this idea that cancer is a disease that starts when a cell in your body picks up genetic changes and, and multiplies out of control. And you go, okay, that's cool. So a damaged cell, that's a bad idea. That's going to become a cancer cell. And in the past few years, as we've seen advances in DNA sequencing technology, where we can just, we can take tiny, tiny samples of normal, healthy tissue. And researchers at the Sanger Institute in Cambridge have been doing this, all different parts of the body in normal, healthy people, no cancer, and using fine level DNA sequencing and discovering that even normal tissue is a complete patchwork of mutation. And many of these mutations, these genetic changes, that if we found those in a cancer, we would say that that was like a cancer change, that, that genetic change was driving the cancer. So like right. we are just a mess of mutated cells. And yet most of us in our entire lifetime, these trillions of mutated messed up cells will only develop one or maybe two cancers. And that is incredible to me. Right. You I know, guess what they do is they they reach a threshold of size and uh, coordination where they become like their own life form and they're able to evade the immune system and grow and proliferate. But for the most part, well, they seem to be kept at bay, I guess. Well, you have to read the book and find out. But yeah, it's there's lots of things going on. The immune system is one. It's this idea that our cells live in a kind of a society and they sort of police themselves and they're fighting against each other and, and jostling for space. But it does seem that there's there are some kind of big trigger events. And this was really what I was drilling into a lot in the book was like, what turns a kind of a sad cell, a cell with some changes into a bad cell, a cancer change? And it looks like at the genetic level, what we call kind of chromosomal instability. So the chromosomes go through some kind of really catastrophic kind of damage. And we don't know really what causes that or quite what that looks like. We can see the traces of it. So it seems like, you know, we've got lots and lots of mutations, but it's this kind of chromosomal catastrophe is the trigger to develop cancer. And that may be a function of uh, what's going on in our tissues, things like inflammation in our tissues, the role of the immune system, the role of the, the carcinogens, the things that are damaging our DNA around us. So it's, it's a very complex problem and it's, and really it's an evolutionary problem. And then the other kind of the other end of it where I got really excited was thinking about how can we use knowledge of evolution and evolutionary strategies to treat cancer more effectively. So this is really taking into account this evolutionary process and trying to, to steer or to channel evolution to treat cancer more effectively. That definitely got me really excited. So that kind of ideas that I've been most excited about, this, this confluence of genetics and evolution and cancer that we're now able to, 
to do because of the, the genetic tools that we have, the sequencing tools that we have, the microscopy, the, DNA, the imaging tools we have, being able to do digital imaging of, of tiny microscope images of tumours, I think is getting us to a very exciting place. Well, did you look just at the genetics and the morphology of tumors, or did you look at like the epigenetics, the transcriptomics, the metabolomics, and all the other omics? Um, so quite a lot of those I touch on. Mostly in the book, I focused on the genetics, the underlying genetics and the genetic heterogeneity that we see in tumors. So, you know, every tumor is a patchwork of, of cells that all have their own kind of different mutations. And then also did focus, there's a, a chapter where we focus on the microenvironment, so the, the kind of the digital pathology that's going on, being able to take images of, of tumours and, and analyse those in incredible detail, see where immune cells are and really understand the tissue environment. My scientific background is actually in epigenetics. And so I, I touch on it a bit, but I, I, I went down the, the epigenetics rabbit hole a lot more in my first book. And I think when it comes to the epigenetics of cancer, there's, there's some very interesting stuff. And there's also quite a lot of nonsense as well, I think. it's. With epigenetics, generally, there's a lot of people inferring a lot of things into it because it's a very cool science and it's a very cool word and it's a very cool idea. There's a lot of imprecision about what we actually mean by it. Well, overall, do you consider yourself like, uh, you know, do you follow like the neo-Darwinist line of thinking or uh, do you think of evolution in a, in a different way? I don't really like to sort of pigeonhole myself into that kind of box because I think in terms of like organismal evolution, I just don't really know enough. So the thing that I've really focused on is this, these cancer evolutionary processes, which are very, very similar to the kind of the macro scale evolutionary processes that we see. But definitely, I think selection, natural selection does, does happen. It is an important driving force within our tissues. But I think it's sort of, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's an environment, there's a tissue effect. It's all kind of like, it's a knotty problem that's all joined together for sure. And unpicking it, I think, is is going to be a, a really interesting challenge. Yeah, I mean, do you think that cells have some level of cognition, you know, whether it's bacteria or human cells or viruses once they've entered a cell? Or do you think it's uh, it's not that they're just machines, essentially? Don't like the word cognition, because I think that's we automatically define that in relation to our human understanding of what cognition is. So I think it's a, a false term to use. I don't mind anthropomorphizing. I know I'm putting you on the spot here but uh i'm treating you as because of your background i'm just treating you as like i would any any other like high level researcher i just assume like you know you know all the stuff you thought it through a lot but yeah do you think like cells have a sense of self versus other and agency and some level of uh of cognition whatever that level may be no matter how limited when again I, i reject the use of the word cognition because i think it's too loaded in our in what our human understanding is i think selection natural selection works i don't i don't think that it's driven or directional and i i'm aware that i do anthropomorphize in my books um, and i pull myself up on it all the time because cells don't i don't think cells want to do things on the on the scale at which cells are acting like they live or they die the ones that live get through i don't i think using a word like cognition is it's really loaded so to that extent yeah, to it, which it, they it have agent trouble sure yeah no i don't i don't think a cell i don't think a cell has agency and cells that survive able to proliferate, pass on their genes and, and live to see another day. But I don't necessarily put any agency on it in the same way that I don't think a cancer wants to kill you. I think cells are just doing what they're doing. They're proliferating. And if they're not 
kept in check, then the ones that make it will keep on proliferating. Well, do you think a cancer wants to survive? Do you think it's all one organism or do you think it's just individual cells that are wigging out in their own way and there's no real organization to it? So I think because one of the ideas that I do touch on in the book is this idea of the cellular society and there are rules that govern societies, but I don't think they're kind of conscious necessarily because if you don't adhere by these rules, your society just doesn't work. So these are rules like, you know, don't proliferate more than you should, clear up after yourself, you know, stay out of the way when you've done your job, don't take more resources than you should. Because if you don't adhere to those rules, which have been honed by evolution, then your tissues don't work, then your society doesn't work. We can see that in action on a macro and a micro level. A researcher that's worked a lot on this and explored these ideas a lot is a woman called Athena Ectipis at Arizona State University. So there is collectivism in our tissues, but I don't think that there is consciousness or, uh, or cognition. But we do, see, we do see examples of, you know, mutualism, even in cancer cells, some cancer cells producing molecules that the cells around them can use. Um, but that's just what cells do. Like cancer cells are not weird. They are our cells that have become changed. So, you know, and they, they do adhere to at least some of the rules of, of our biology, albeit in a very messed up way. But as to whether there's any sort of directionality or intention to that, I, I don't think so. However much I do have a tendency to anthropomorphize. Well, if you compare cancer to like a biofilm of bacteria versus individual free-living bacteria, or if you look at, you know, our microbiome, we consider some of them commensal or mutualistic and some of them pathogenic, but the same bacteria can be both. It really depends, I guess, on context. So I just wonder if you're drawing any parallels between looking at uh, these other organisms or bacteria or other creatures that do quorum sensing. How do they do quorum sensing if they don't have a sense of being able to count in some fashion? So therefore, there's some level of maybe intelligence. Yeah, I think that is fascinating. And uh, it sort of comes down to the, the definitions of intelligence. My my partner works in an AI and we talk a lot about like what does artificial intelligence look like? What would a, what would an AI look like and all this kind of thing? And I think it's, it's when we use words like cognition and intelligence, it's really hard to use those words without imbuing them with what we understand as human intelligence or human cognition. So, yeah, I think I, th- I definitely do think that biofilms and quorum sensing are, are really fascinating. They have how would you define intelligence is, is sort of the the question that I'd throw back at you. Yeah, no, it's tough. Like I've asked a lot of virologists, do they think viruses are alive? And a lot say no. Some say yes, but only when they've entered into a cell and they've formed what's called a virocell, you know, Patrick Fortier. And some say yes the whole time. I mean, it's just, I mean, why not ask difficult questions and see what people say? You know? Yeah, I, I like I like the virus one. That's sort of it's kind of late night, you know, you're sitting in a bar and you're like, you can go around the houses on, is a virus alive? The, the one that I kind of went around the houses on, the sort of my late night scotch drinking question was, um, if there were aliens, would they have cancer? Like if there were multicellular aliens, would aliens be able to get cancer? And I, I came to the conclusion that, yeah, if they are multicellular and if the processes of evolution by natural selection are in operation, which I would generally assume that if a multicellular organism has evolved on another planet, then they probably would be, then yeah, probably aliens can get cancer too because we see cancer across the whole tree of life across all of multicellularity you know even when you look at bacteria you can see strange mutations in bacteria that make some cells in a bacterial culture proliferate faster to the point where they're actually they'll cause the rest of the culture to die so in some ways that's a bit like sort of a bacterial cancer so yeah that was my you know would it would aliens get cancer and i think yeah yeah they probably could well very good cat sorry to 
to beat you up on all these questions, but you did you answered them really well. Where can listeners go to first find your podcast, and then uh, which books do you want to point them to? So people can find the Genetics Unzipped podcast at geneticsunzipped.com, and we are on all the regular podcast platforms and Spotify and Apple and all of those. Um, you can find my book Rebel Cell from all good bookshops. Uh, it's available in the US and the UK and, and many other places. I've got a little website for it, which is rebelcellbook.com, uh, which has links where you can buy it. And uh, and I hang out on Twitter. I'm at cat, K-A-T underscore Arnie, A-R-N-E-Y. Well, very good. Kat, thanks for coming. It's been a good call. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.